So I wanted to give them as many tools as possible. If somebody has made the decision that I want to be the best hitter I can possibly can, I, I can be, in order to become that, it takes you paying attention to nutrition, paying attention to obviously the mechanics, the mental side, the vision side, what you're doing in the weight room. All those things play a big part in developing as a hitter, developing as a baseball player. So I want to give them as many tools as possible. Welcome to Ahead of the Curve, your source for the most up-to-date coaching strategies for player and coaching development. For an update on our contest, it ended yesterday, and I'm proud to announce that Coach Jordan Prater won a free book of his choice. So thank you all again for sharing the show. On today's show, we're talking with hitting coach and author Chris Dunn. His book, The High Performance Hitter, is an extremely comprehensive resource and is perfect for anyone who is looking to build a complete hitter with one book. In the book and in our conversation, we cover everything from nutrition to vision to swing mechanics, and we discuss how to do all of that in a team setting. You're going to love this conversation with Chris Dunn. Chris Dunn, thank you for being on Ahead of the Curve. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Excited uh, excited to talk to you. Oh, I'm really excited as well. I'm glad we could finally connect. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. So I was born and raised out in Colorado, played high school baseball and football uh, out here in Parker, Colorado, played under Steve Eaton, was my head baseball coach, which um, I'm sure will come up later, but he was a huge influence on me and a big influence on me, especially career, uh, coaching career wise. I got uh, drafted out of high school by the Cincinnati Reds. I was back in the uh, old draft and follow days. So I ended up going to Central Arizona for a year where I had my freshman year. I actually got hurt at thoracic outlet syndrome. So I got hurt that year. So I ended up not signing with the Reds, but played two more years at Central, went to Florida International and signed with the Marlins for as a um, senior sign, as a fifth year senior sign with the Marlins as a free agent. Played four years with the Marlins. Tore my Achilles. I was a center fielder guy. I was a speed guy. I wasn't much of a hitter, so that uh, that Achilles injury really hurt me. Um, so I ended up having to rehab that for a year, tried to play another year, and just wasn't the same player, and that's when I got released. Luckily, by going to school, um, I was able to get my finance degree. So right after I got done playing, I was kind of done with the game for a little bit, wanted to get away. I ended up getting into finance down here in Denver. Did that for about eight months, and I was like, nope, can't do it. So I had to uh, find my way back into the game, and luckily I had stayed in contact with, with Steve Eaton, my old high school coach, and he actually gave me my first opportunity to start coaching, start um, doing lessons, and I coached a, a high school travel team here in Denver, and that's what kind of kicked off my coaching career. So was there like a specific reason that you decided to get back into coaching or were you just like, man, I missed the game. So you just decided to get back into it. First of all, I love the game and I enjoy working with kids. I enjoy just the camaraderie that comes with being around baseball, you know, being around with your with your buddies, being around uh, with the kids and obviously being able to teach. Obviously, the office job <laughs> was not was was painful for me. So, you know, that's, that was a motivation. I wanted to be able to make a career out of something that I loved. The other motivation was trying to help Colorado baseball players, specifically hitters. You know, we've, we've got an okay track record in Colorado for developing pitchers and getting pitchers chances to play at the next level, but hitters, especially when I was playing in high school, shoot, 15 years ago, 15 years ago, I guess now, it was it was tough to get seen as a Colorado hitter. It was tough to get opportunities to play at the next level. And even now, where hitters from Colorado are getting more of an opportunity, they're seeming to be struggling at the le- uh, at the next level. So we'll get guys that sent off to D1, or they'll be sent to the next level, and next year they'll be back because they couldn't compete. They couldn't hold up against that higher-level pitching, against national-level pitching. So... Being able to get Colorado guys a chance not only to play, but also to continue to play and continue to compete at the highest level was was a big motivation for me. 
So I used to coach summer ball, and we used to travel to Colorado to play in a tournament in Pueblo. And we would always play Cherry Creek High School from Denver. And those guys could really play. But we would talk to them, and they just had finished their high school season and had only played like 15 to 20 games and said that that was kind of the norm in Colorado. So do you think that that's the reason why most high schools in Colorado aren't as competitive as they should be? I think that's, yeah, I definitely think that that is the case. With hitting especially, it takes time at the dish. It takes time developing um, your vision, seeing higher, higher level pitching. And it's just tough when we're inside, you know, four, five, six months out of the year. That's really difficult uh, to be able to develop that, that comfort level at the plate. So that's a big factor. The other factor, obviously, is just not facing high level pitching very often. You know, we do have some good pitchers that come out of the state and there's a lot of talented kids, but there's nothing on the level of what the California and Texas and Florida kids are seeing on a daily basis. So you get 15 games, 20 games in the spring, maybe you see one or two high level guys. And then beyond that, you know, you're just seeing everyday guys. And that's, that's really tough when you go off to D one and you're trying to face those guys every day. So you got back into the game and let's flash forward several years and you decided to write a book. Now, the book that you wrote is called The High Performance Hitter. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, the the book was there was I, I had two main goals with the book. The first goal was I wanted to make something very practical. I wanted to make something that that kids and coaches could look at and they could say, "Okay, this is what needs to happen. This is the why." Okay, and then this is the how. This is how I train this. This is how I approach this problem. And this is how I can solve that problem. The other thing I wanted to do was try to make it as complete as possible. So as hitters, obviously, we worry about our mechanics. You know, guys talk about your approach or, or your mental game and stuff like that. But in reality, it's there's a lot of factors that go into becoming a good hitter. And I wanted to be able to touch on all those things that I felt was important because when you're just worried about one or two things, if you're worried about just your mechanics or just the mental game, a lot of get things get left behind. So if your mechanics aren't working properly, a lot of times it's not because of you not trying hard enough or you not having the proper coaching or whatever it is. It may be a case where your body simply can't do what you're asking it to do, whether you can't fire certain muscle groups or you can't get into certain positions because you don't have the hip mobility to get into them. So those are things that can be addressed or uh, can be addressed not in a cage or at the tee, but that needs to be addressed in a weight room setting, right? In an everyday setting. And so I wanted to give them as many tools as possible. If somebody has made the decision that I want to be the best hitter I can possibly can, I, I can be. In order to become that, it takes you paying attention to nutrition, paying attention to obviously the mechanics, the mental side, the vision side, um, what you're doing in the weight room. All those things play a big part in developing as a hitter, developing as a baseball player. So I want to give them as many tools as possible. So making it practical, making it complete was my two main focuses with the book. So on the intro to your book, there was one line that really stuck out to me that I loved, and you've already hit, hit on it a little bit, but it was that this book was created to be the most complete and practical resource for hitters to reach their full potential. So you really took all of those different things that you just talked about and put it in one book so one person could buy the book and have all of that in one resource. Right, and... Yeah, and that's what I kind of want. I want it to be a resource that they can use for as long as their career goes, something that they can always refer back to. Um, and, you know, I did the best I could. I did. I put everything I had, all my knowledge into the book. Now, am I right on everything? Probably not. Is there every single piece to the puzzle in there? Probably not. But I wanted to make the most practical or, I'm sorry, the most complete and um, long-lasting resources possible for these guys. Man, I love that. And you know the show is player development-based, and I'm so excited to have you on. But let's dig in a little bit. So a kid walks up and says, Coach Dunn, I want to be trained. Where do we start, and what's the first thing that you guys would do? 
first thing I do is I, I take them through, I take them through a gentle warm up. I get them loose. I take them in the cage. We take some swings, and um, we'll get some video. And then the first day is really spent on on trying to build a knowledge base and, and trying to build some context for the hitter. So we'll go through. We won't even look at his video to start. What I'll do is I'll kind of go through a basic roadmap for him in terms of what we're looking for mechanics-wise. And we'll look at major league hitters. We'll talk about you know three things, what I call my, my swing principles or my uh, swing fundamentals that we're trying to accomplish with every swing, the things that we're trying to do every single time. And uh, we'll go through that. We'll look at hitters. We'll show them examples. We'll really talk about the why. We'll talk about the reasons that all these positions and movements are important. And we'll talk, what, what has he been taught? What has he learned? What, is, what are his thoughts on all this? And try to start a dialogue and try to allow, to, allow them to gain a little bit of uh, ownership in the process so that when I'm talking to them, I understand where they're coming from. So we'll try to build that context and they're not going to learn everything. I mean, we'll sit and talk for 30, 40 minutes or so going over the video and I don't expect them to remember everything or be able to recall everything perfectly. But at least at that point, they have some context in what we're going to be doing going forward. They're going to have something to draw upon as we go forward. And maybe I'll say something and it'll click and we'll say, oh, that's right. We're doing this because this needs to happen first. And then after that, we'll get into his video. We'll look at his swings. And when I first start going over their video, I'll just kind of let it play and go over it slow motion with them without really saying much. And I'll just kind of ask them, what do they see? What do they notice? What do they like? What do they dislike? And then I'll ask them, kind of, what do they see in terms of the things that we just talked about, in terms of the things that you just saw with the major league hitters and what are the differences? Usually at that point, they can, they're pretty quick and they're pretty uh, intuitive in seeing those differences and understanding, oh, I'm way off. I'm not even close. I'm way out of sequence or whatever. So once we do that, then I'll kind of start to chime in a little bit. We'll uh, go through their, their evaluation sheet where we'll just kind of go through, you know, 10 or 15 things that I think are important. We'll just kind of fill out the evaluation sheet and make a, make a plan going forward saying, you know, you're good here. We're going to really focus on doing this going forward. This is how we're going to do it. And then um, I, usually, I usually leave them with a couple things to do at home, some dry work, some mirror work. Uh, that allows them to kind of get started before I see them the next time. If there's one thing that I could take from that, it's that there's a conversation between you and the player. And it's not like you're telling him exactly what to do. And I love that. You know, a couple of years ago, as a younger coach, whenever I was just getting started, I didn't do that. It was more of a one-way conversation. And then I heard somebody tell me that it's ultimately his career, not my career. And that really put a spark into me. And I just went, man, if it's his career, then I need to help him own it. So I'm completely sold on how you and your players have a two-way dialogue. Right. And that's, that's maybe the most important thing that, you know, I, I was the same way. And I think all coaches when they first start are. But finding a way to create a dialogue, finding a way to get the kids engaged into the process is the best thing you can ever do for a player because at that point when they get engaged and when they get excited and they're exci uh, excited and enthusiastic about the process, then not only does it be make our job easier because they're trying to figure it out along with you as a coach, but they're working on it five or six or seven times a week. You know, they're not coming in once a week, twice a week, three times a week to come see and hit with you. They're doing it every day and it becomes a part of their everyday process where, you know, I always, I always tell guys there's time, there's time that you can find all throughout the day. And you'll notice the, the kids that are different, the kids that have bought in that really want it, you'll see them in non-baseball settings, right? Like they're at the mall or something and they're like going through these weird movements and it's like those That's are the awesome. guys that have engaged and, and whoever they're working with or have been coached by has gotten them 
to a point where they can take their career to the next level because at that point they've gained ownership and they're engaged and they're involved in the process. So really you're giving them all homework and they love it. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Once those kids get engaged, they, they're, they're always asking for more, you know, they're, they're begging for more. And that's that, even though as a coach, sometimes that can be annoying and tiresome, but at the same time, it's like, those kids get it. Those are the kids you want to work with because they, you know that they're going to work their ass off for you. You know that they're engaged in everything you're telling them to do. You, you know that they're going to do the things that you ask them to at home, uh, do at home. So that's always the ultimate goal. No, that's fantastic. And something that's helped me in the past, and I know we've got two slightly different jobs. We're both wanting to develop players and you're in the facility setting and I'm in the high school setting. But Whenever I give homework to the kids and I tell them that every time they brush their teeth, they need to either be doing dry work or arm shaping drills. And, you know, hopefully they're at least brushing their teeth twice a day in front of a mirror. So that would give them two more opportunities and a reminder to do that. And in my opinion, you'll immediately see, you know, who's doing that and who's not. Yeah. Oh, for sure. You can definitely tell the kids. So when, when kids come in, you know, to come hit, they go through, they go through a general warm up. they go through some swing prep movements. And then each kid has their own, their own dry work that they go through. And the kids that show up and just start doing their stuff and are able to get through their swing prep and their dry work without me saying anything or without me really directing them to do things or tell them, Hey, after that, you're supposed to do this or do this next. Those are the kids, you know, are doing it every day. You know, it's, Come, become part of their processes. It's became part of their everyday activities. So, so you don't necessarily have to remind the kids what you did last week or what the drills that you did were. Right, right. So those are the kids that are those are the kids that have bought in. So if we could rewind just a minute, I heard you say something earlier about the three things that you guys look for whenever they first walk into the door. So would you mind going into detail about those three things? Sure. So, and th- this is, this is strictly from a mechanical standpoint. And obviously there's a lot more that goes into hitting, but when we're, when we're first starting out, you know, it's, we're, we're initially talking about the movements they're creating and, and what their bodies are doing during the swing. So in terms of those three things our fundamentals, and this is something that I've actually recently changed, which will be in the first update of the book was the first fundamental is loading forward, which I'm kind of worked away from and now I now I, I, I call it overlapping load. Okay. So an overlapping load, creating s- proper sequence and getting on plane. So three fundamental movements that kind of everything plays into in terms of our our swing. And those three things set up our context, like I was saying. It starts to build a roadmap for us. And as we go forward, we can start to fill in all that with all the nitty gritty stuff into those three fundamentals. But I I try to keep it simple the first day. Essentially, what we're talking about with an overlapping load is when they're loading, when they're starting to get their body in a position to launch, is there a continuous movement from that load into the launching phase? So one of the biggest things I see with hitters, even at the high school and college level, is a load, a stop, and then a restart into their launch. So when you look at high-level hitters, that load and and launch are two blended movements. It's really difficult to see exactly when one starts and when the other one um, ends. So creating that continuous movement is, is really critical, not only to uh, get our body in a good se- sequence position and create stretch and, and put our muscles in stretch positions to fi- fire explosively, uh, but it also get, creates a rhythm. It creates timing for us. A lot of hitters, when they're struggling or, or just when they're hitting against pitchers, want to get ready early. And they want to get ready so early that they create this start and stop movement. And guys will get their hands back early and then they just kind of stop. And it kind of fools them into thinking they're on time with everything because there's no rhythm. There's no uh, timing mechanism that's working and flowing with the pitcher. So creating that over, overlapping load. 
it creates timing for us. It creates rhythm for us. And then also it, it puts us in positions uh, to create force and create good plane. So those the overlapping load kind of leads into the next two fundamentals, which is getting sequenced where the lower half is firing. The back leg is driving the hips into rotation. When we see that, the, the, this is hard without video or without any visuals, but Definitely. You, you'll see the back leg driving the hips open. We create stretch through the middle of our body. Um, the hands are still back. The shoulders are, are slightly closed or slightly behind the pelvis. And then as we go, we start kind of firing other muscle groups in our, in our, in, in the order, right? So hips, trunk, the, the uh, scaps kind of start to grab. Then the arms kind of start to turn, then the hands and the barrel comes last. So we're trying to create that sequence to create stretch. Um, it also puts our body in a balanced position where we're creating forces in opposite directions and we're putting our body in a position to make adjustments if we need to, if we're off time or stop our swing if we have to, if it's a bad pitch. The best analogies I have of sequences from Jerry Brewer, which is thinking about it in terms of gears in a car, right? Like first, second, third, fourth gear, they all have a job, right? And first gear, first gear isn't more important than second gear or third gear, or fourth gear, just because it's first, they're all equally important. But what we really need to understand as hitters is, is the, the job and the role of each muscle group and body part and how they work together to create force, create plane adjustability, all that stuff. Well, even if you don't have video, that gave me a really good pic mental picture of what you're talking about. So I want to applaud you on that. And I know, I know that's not very easy to do, but let's say that I walk into the door and I have probably a ton of swing deficiencies. So tell me what we would do first. Uh, would we start with the overlapping load or, I mean, is that the first thing that we were trying to correct? Our load really sets, really sets the stage for what we're doing the, with the rest of our body and with the rest of our swing. Guys that come in, and most guys, you know, there's always a couple problems. And this is difficult because a lot of times two or three swing flaws or issues may be caused by one thing, right? So even though they have two or three deficiencies, if we can clean up one or two movements, then a lot of times the rest of it gets fixed on its own. With most guys, the place that we start is is in very like raw stripped down movements and understanding how to i guess the best way to say is understanding how to get the barrel moving properly and and feeling how the barrel moves properly ultimately getting the barrel in the right position and moving along the right path is probably job number 1 so if they can feel what proper bat path and and good deep barrel speed feels like their body kind of organizes itself underneath that swing for the most part. So I start with like really stripped down constraint drills. Like we'll do, um, one of my favorites is throwing PVCs. So what you have, we have these PVCs with like a little T attachment on the end so that they can throw these PVCs into the net and I'll put them in a constraint drill. I'll usually start them at 90 degrees. So their feet normally you know, are in line with the pitcher. We'll open them up fully so that they're uh, 90 degrees to the pitcher. And just getting them to feel what it feels like to throw the PVC hard with force, with deep barrel speed through the middle of the zone into the net is usually job number one for us. And once they start to understand that the barrel feels differently in their hands when they do it properly, then we can really start to make headway with it because then they can really start to feel the difference and what their body needs to do in order to accomplish that barrel feel. And we'll do the same thing with dry swings at 90 degrees. And once you get the head of the bat in there, they can really start to feel, you know, when they're pushing, when they're out of sequence, when uh, their bat path or their direction is pull side, which is most of them, they can fix what their body needs to do in order to get it through the middle, get it deep, get it whipping, get it smooth. And then from there, then we can kind of start to attack the little small issues if we need to. I guess to answer your question, I, I, I take a holistic approach to it. I try to get them to just feel what good bat path, fast bat path through the middle of the field feels like. And then um, a lot of times things start to take care of themselves. 
So you guys have an evaluation sheet that you fill out the first couple of days for the first couple of times they come in uh, with things they do well and things that they didn't do as well? Right. So, yeah, I have, I think, 10 or 12 things. Coil, how they turn, how they brace on the front side, how their trunk uh, works, how it tilts, um, connection, and then obviously the other things, the, the sequence the overlap, what their plane looks like, what their direction looks like, what their whip looks like. And we just kind of go through them. We kind of grade them out, add some notes. And then that allows me to kind of build their uh, swing prep and dry work program. So they'll go through, everybody go through basically the same general warm up, And then each guy will kind of have their own mirror work, dry work, swing prep stuff that they do before they hit. And then also that they need to be doing six times a week, five times a week, whatever it is to address those particular issues. And I really think the dry work, the mirror work, the slow motion stuff, the feels, all those things are a lot better and a lot more valuable to do in low pressure environments, right? Where you're not having to worry about hitting a ball, especially worrying about hitting a moving ball, but even hitting a ball off the tee can be stressful. So trying to do too much in those situations with really being conscious about your movements is tough. So that's why I think the, the dry work and the mirror work is so valuable. So do you go through and evaluate again? Or, well, let me ask you this. How do you know if the plan that you and the player put together is working or not? Well, first and foremost is is feedback from the hitter. Does it feel better? Do you feel like you are more successful at the plate what do you feel like is working? What is helping? What's not helping? What direction do we need to take going forward? So that dialogue that we talked about earlier, that's that's the first place we start. And then almost all my hitters will send me uh, game footage. So I'm usually getting game footage a couple times a week at the, uh, uh, you know, at the least. These guys are playing a lot. So we're getting game footage. And then... Uh, and then we're still getting video in the facility. So we're seeing how their swing changes in the lower pressure environments and, you know, BP situations or off the tee or whatever, but also in game situations. And um, so that's, a, that's a, the biggest feedback is getting a video. And game swings is obviously what we're working towards. So getting those and being able to see those on video and go over them with them is, um, is really the big thing. So on average, how often do you get to see the players that you're working with? I'm, I still do one-on-one lessons, and um, but 90% of my hitters are, are all small group stuff. So in the small group, I see guys two, three, four times a week usually. And then with my one-on-one guy, I, I have one-on-one guys that come in four times a week. Um, I have one-on-one guys that come in once a week. Uh, that's about as far spread out as I like it is about once a week. The reason I still like to do once a week stuff is because especially with the younger kids without licenses, time and and getting rides can still be difficult. So um with the one-on-one stuff, you know, I like to see kids once a week, but like I said, 90% of my my hitters are in 3 to 4 times a week usually in small groups. Now, is there a difference in what you do in the off-season? And with guys versus what you do in season with guys? Oh, absolutely. For sure. So off season, you know, winter time, or we've got a lot of guys that are taking the fall off. That's our time to really dig in mechanically and really try to create better movements, uh, create better patterns. Um, that's also their time that they need to be, you know, busting in the weight room, getting bigger and stronger. Um, they're really trying to put on weight. Most of the high school kids were trying to put on weight. And we can really get very specific. Uh, we can really dial in the mechanic stuff. We'll also do a lot of bat speed stuff. So even in season, I do the weighted bats, the underload and the overload bats, not so much for bat speed development, but a little bit of maintenance. But the big thing I like to do the weighted bats in season is for proprioception. And uh, the guys learn a lot faster using the weighted bats going through the constraints. But Back to off season, where we're doing bat speed development. We'll do more vision stuff, more of like in the book I call it hardware versus software. So hardware is 
you know, the physical way our eyes work, right? Acuity, tracking, all that stuff is hardware in our vision system that we can really kind of dig in in the off season. Now, once we get in the in season, we're doing more talking, more mental, more approach, pitch recognition stuff. So, you know, I'm working more off time stuff where when I'm throwing or flipping or um, even off the tee, we can add some variables so that they can work off time, work adjustments. At that point in season, their swing is pretty much what their swing is. You know, it, you can make small adjustments, but really we want to make those mechanical adjustments off season and in season. We take what we have, we try to optimize it, we try to get them in positions where they can adjust. We work on, you know, creating rhythm, creating timing. Uh, when they're in the facility, you know, we go through, you know, we work through counts, you know, okay, this is a two strike round. I mix in pitches and stuff like that. So uh, a lot more game situation type stuff in season. So we didn't get a chance to discuss this earlier, but you were in Florida at Inspiration Academy for about a year, right? Correct. Yeah. Well, most of our listeners are coaches in the team setting and now you've been a coach in both settings, so in the private setting and in the team setting. And I'm sure you figured this out, that it's really hard to do individual training in a team setting when you have like 20 or 30 guys that you're trying to work with, with limited time and space. So how did you get around those obstacles? I think it comes back to getting the kids to buy into what you're doing and giving them the freedom to kind of explore that knowledge and explore their own careers and their own development, I guess. So we try to provide early on as much knowledge firsthand. You know what I'm saying? We're, we're, we're trying to impart as much knowledge as we can. So we going over video saying, this is what we're trying to accomplish. This is how we're going to do it. And then finding ways, obviously there's, there's space, limitations and uh, time limitations that you have to factor in. So with those, you almost have to give them a little bit of freedom. And that's why I like the constraint drills so much. If you use constraint drills that force them into good positions and force them to do the correct thing, and this is talking about the hitting side right now, but you can kind of allow them to do it on their own and kind of feel it out on their own. Because if you put them in a 90-degree in a position and their goal is to hit the ball as hard as they can through the middle, you don't have to sit there and watch them and say, no, oh, your hands are too high, You know, your hips need to do this, because the constraint takes care of that. If they're hooking the ball, or they're slicing it, or they're topping it, whatever it is, it's immediately obvious to them that they need to make an adjustment, and then through trial and error, uh, they're able to fix it on their own without a coach being right on top of them. So if you have 14 guys, 15 guys, 16 guys, and you have two coaches, you don't have to be on top of them all the time. So at Inspiration, we basically just had stations, um, and we had as many metrics as we could, whether it was uh, radar guns or the bat speed, the zaps or dime connects or whatever you have, and you tell them, okay, first round through, first rotation through, this is the constraint that you're doing. This is the drill that you're doing. You try to hit the ball as hard as you can through the middle, and you're going to know it by the by the uh, reading. And you just go through, get this amount of swings, and then you move on. And we had weighted bats and all that stuff. So um, the weighted bats, the constraints, you know, the the exit speed readings and all that stuff was enough to keep them engaged and keep them working properly without coaches having to be all on top of them. And that goes for, um, you know, the driveline stuff that we did, the arm development. It's a, it's the same thing, and it comes all from the same place and, and creating constraints and, and adding variation to the training that doesn't force coaches to be all on top of the kids. And uh, once they learn the system, and, that, and maybe that's the hardest thing for coaches is kind of let go and not feel like you have to be on top of them for everything and, and allowing a group to go do their vision stuff on their own, you know, and having another group doing driveline and having another group doing the hitting stuff that way you can maximize your time so that's the biggest thing i think maybe for hitter or from coaches is being able to give them that freedom and trusting that they'll do what they need to do 
For our listeners who don't know what constraint training is, I think you're basically taking the Bernstein principle, which is allowing your body to organize itself based upon the movements that you're applying. So you're putting them in these constraint drills that are basically sink or swim, and they either get positive feedback or negative feedback with every swing they take. So what you're really trying to do is to get them to feel what you're wanting them to feel. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean that's pretty much it. It's 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 trial and error and it's them trying to figure out how to accomplish the task at hand from that constraint. And when they do that and are able to feel the differences, those changes that they make in their body are much more sticky than any cue I could give a hitter. So when they learn it by trial and error and through just pure figuring it out, those are much more lasting changes and much more impactful on them. Whereas if I tell a kid, all right, your hands, they need to get back a little bit earlier. It may work for a swing. It may work for a round or maybe a day. But for the most part, they're going to revert back to what they were doing before. Because they can't so, feel it, right? Right, because they can't, they can't feel it. Or maybe they do feel it. But it's hard to make that connection between what you just did and the adjustment that you made, right? Because sometimes they'll make the adjustment and they'll hit the ball poorly. And then you're like square one, right? The first time they try to do something, okay, get your hands back earlier. The first time they do it, it may not be successful. And then they're like questioning it and they can't make that connection between what they did and the result. So trying to eliminate that and, allow them to feel it out on their own and, and try to feel it on their own is, is much more lasting. Well, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, and that's the dialogue between you and the player. And so when they're not as successful as we want them to be, and especially when they're trying to learn something new, you go back to work and you develop a plan of action together. And that's why I think dialogue between you and the player is so huge it's because when they're not doing as well as we want them to do, it develops a trust between you and the player. Right, right, exactly. And try sometimes with a lot of hitters when they first come in, they're like, "I don't, I don't know what is going on. I don't feel anything. I don't feel the difference." And when they start saying, "I felt it. I feel that. I understand that," then that's when things really start clicking and. When you have that dialogue also, you can start to translate what, what their feel is between what's actually happening, right? And we, we always talk about major league hitters and this guy says he feels this and this guy says he feels that. So how do we, I mean, how do we connect those two? So we have to understand every hitter feels things differently and there's no wrong feel, right? Like when you watch Pools talk about hitting, the things he talks about him trying to feel or trying to do are totally different than what he actually does in his game swing. That doesn't make his feelings invalid, right? It just makes them different and it just makes him who he is and every hitter is unique and they feel things differently. So if you never have that dialogue, that translation never happens. So that's the other thing that's really important and uh, or another reason why it's important to have that dialogue. So being a guy who works with a ton of different age groups, in your opinion, what is the biggest area of growth for baseball players? The biggest thing is is creating that ownership of your career, of saying, this is when I want to do it. I'm going to accomplish it at almost any cost, right? And I'm going to take an extra couple minutes every day to do my dry work or um, I'm going to spend a little bit extra time trying to figure out why this is happening or why that's happening. I, the ownership thing is the biggest thing. And one of the quotes that I love from uh, Connor McGregor, it's actually in the book, is there's no talent here. This is hard work. I'm not talented. I'm obsessed. I love that quote so much because that's a guy that has taken complete and total ownership into his career. He's going to do anything he can possibly do to make himself better and and uh, continue to do what he's been doing. And 
yeah, talent does play a part in it and everybody has varying talent levels, but that almost obsession, uh, obsessive approach is those guys that not only make it to the next level, but the level after that and a level after that, because they're always pushing themselves and they're not relying on somebody else to do it for them. They're not relying on a coach to do everything for them. They're going to learn from that coach, but ultimately they understand that they need to understand this and they need to be able to do this hundred percent on their own and they need to be doing it every day. And it's not always easy to get that across. I think it's just something kids have to make that decision on. Players need to make that decision that, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm all in. I'm going to take ownership. And this is just what I do, you know, not worrying about what other people think or what other people say, but saying, I've got this goal. I want to get better. And this is how I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do everything in my power to do it. Man, I love that. That's, that's fantastic. So with you being a lifelong learner and wanting to continually get better, what's the latest thing that you've learned? When I first came back uh, to Colorado, I came back uh, December-ish last year. I really got more into uh, the group stuff. And that's just been the biggest eye-opener for me was understanding the group dynamics and understanding how important it is to have kids that are on the same page in terms of wanting to get better and wanting to work and um, wanting to learn more. The kids, the kids in these groups are just as valuable to each other as I am to them. Because when I have these groups, my college guys are so great about it. When, you know, a guy's hitting, the other guys aren't standing off to the side, like just waiting for their turn. They're talking, they're collaborating, they're sitting in the mirror asking questions to the other guy. And that is so valuable and so much more valuable than what I can tell them, you know, because it's somebody that's in their shoes that is struggling through the same problems and their voice has such an impact because they're going through the process. It's not just a matter of me telling them what to do. It's another guy in their same shoes. So that's been the biggest eye opener for me. And I've, you know, I've always liked to do group stuff and I've tried to do the group stuff and it's been difficult. But lately I've really started to figure out sometimes more is less in terms of me coaching and talking and I'm there to answer questions, but them working together as a group and figuring this stuff out together is is invaluable. And, it, and it's really cool to see the guys working together like that and helping each other. So that, that's been my biggest learning um, opportunity that I've been really blessed to be experiencing. Well, I know that the small group setting has been a complete game changer for me as well because I know there are times that I might not be able to explain something in a way that makes complete complete sense to the player, and he just kind of gives me this nod like, yeah, I, I get it, but I kind of don't. And then another player just goes, hey, just do this. And the kid goes, oh, well, yeah, now I get it. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. That's that's exactly what it is. And you've got to find a way to communicate, you know, your knowledge. So as coaches, we have knowledge, right? You have knowledge and I have knowledge. And ultimately, the only thing that matters is if you can communicate that with a hitter and they can understand it. And sometimes for whatever reason, I can throw out a 100 analogies and I cannot get it to click. And then the other kid will just be like, dude, just do this. And they're, and they're like, right. oh, yeah, well, why don't you just say that? <laughs> that's why we have that's, that's why you guys are all working together. So for sure. No, I absolutely agree with that. So something that I always try and and ask and then figure out myself is something that I really once thought was true and I thought it was an absolute, but with changing technology or just me digging in a little deeper, I have changed my mind about. Is there an instance of that that you can think of? So we were talking about the, the swing fundamentals earlier and, and the things that we that I hold true in terms of swing mechanics. And I always talk about the difference between style and fundamentals. And style is is the differences you see in hitters, right? Leg kick, toe tap, um, no stride, whatever. 
there's guys that have been successful at the highest level doing a lot of different things, how they're, how they stand, um, where their hands are, all that stuff is style and that's kind of individual. So when I talk about these fundamentals, I'm saying, I'm talking about things that we see every great hitter. And when the, when I wrote the book, the first fundamental was load forward, right? And I've, I've, I've changed that to more, uh, overlapping load because we see hitters that don't really go forward. Like we'll see, like, uh, I will, I'll look at Goldschmidt, a swing that I really didn't like before a whole lot. And I'll be like that. He's not really loading forward. He's pretty much in place here. But what he is doing is he's not stopping with his load, right? There's continuous movement. There's continuous flow of energy through the kinetic chain. There's no stopping and starting. Um, and then you look at guys like Bonds, and Bonds will sometimes have a little bit of forward. But then other times, he'll be really quiet in terms of staying exactly where he's at, and his head's not moving forward almost at all. And so that's when I was like, okay, how can this be a fundamental if – all these guys aren't necessarily doing it right. So that was, that was been the biggest thing that I've changed recently was, you know, changing from that load, having to go forward to just having it be over, uh, overlapping. No, I understand that. And I think it also depends on their body type, you know, because you take a smaller guy like Pedroia and put them next to bonds or Goldschmidt and you know, Pedroia is going to have to create more power just because he weighs 160 pounds. And so they're going to have some differences based on just body type. Yeah. And there's, yeah. And, you know, that leads into, you know, the other thing about understanding hitters and who they are, what they are, what they're trying to do. And uh, Pedroia is going to have to create leverage in different ways than a guy like Bonds or Goldschmidt. So you have to, you have to be able to customize the information and customize the drills and all that stuff to each individual hitter because they're going to move different. They've got different injuries. They've got different levels of mobility and uh, strength, size. All that needs to play a factor in developing hitters and, and developing anybody athletically and understanding those differences and not trying to fit everybody into the same hole. So besides the high-performance hitter, what are some resources that have shaped your coaching career or just resources that you use constantly? Two of the biggest resources that I call upon are not even necessarily hitting coaches or direct baseball guys, but first of all is guys like Eric Cressy and just helping me understand how the body works, how to train the body and how to get it in good positions to create force, explosiveness, um, all those things we're looking for in a hitter. So I'm always looking at, at Cressy's stuff. I'm looking at other guys that, that deal in movement and strength and uh, mobility stuff. One of the best resources I have are two guys that I share a facility with, and that's DJ Edwards of Push Performance and Nick Thurlow, who's a physical therapist with uh, Next Era. We share a facility, and sometimes I have a problem that, for whatever reason, I can't fix. And sometimes a hitter has a problem that they can't fix, and it's not because they don't understand it. It's not because I'm not telling them or cueing it properly. It's because their body is just not able to do what I'm asking it to do. So Nick, the, the physical therapist who works with a ton of baseball players and, and DJ performance coach in my facility are able to approach my problems from a separate angle. So almost all my hitters work at, at push performance and work with Nick at, at next era. So if I am working with a hitter, DJ's in the same facility, he's 20 feet away from me and I can say, Hey, Billy here you know, has too much uh, thoracic extension. How do we get him to neutral? What does his program have? Can we add more? So not only am I able to approach the problems directly, you know, in the cage or whatever, but I'm also able to address it from a training standpoint, or I can ask questions, DJ, okay, what can I do with these guys in their swing prep? That's going to help them get into better movements. This kid can't coil properly. 
what mobility exercises can I do for his hips or can I add to his swing prep stuff that's going to get him in a better position. So those are my biggest resources day to day to day. I mean, we're asking questions and, you know, it goes both ways. If one of his guys is struggling for whatever reason, you know, I can try to help from my perspective. And uh, that collaboration has been just so huge for me working with those guys every day. It's been awesome and really allowed me to advance my learning and teaching what's not so, okay, just do this, do this, do this. It's got to be a holistic approach and from the training side and from, you know, the, the physical therapy side. Now, are these guys online? And if they are, I will, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. Yes. And uh, where can we find you online in case anyone wants to get in touch with you? You can find me on Twitter. I have my personal account, Chris Dunn 2 Also, the, um, uh, the High Pro account has a lot of swings and drills and uh, videos on there. So I think that's at High Pro Hitting. Uh, also, highprohitting.com is where you can find the book. Uh, we also have weighted bats. So we have wood weighted bats, underload, overload. Uh, wood weighted bats. Um, we also have game bats, hitting logs. So for a uh, game situation, guys have a log that they can mark down all their at bats, what they saw, how they did, how that pitcher threw them, all that stuff. And then also you can find me on Instagram, dot two, and then also high pro hitting on Instagram. So I'll put a link to all of that information in the show notes, but Before you go, Coach Dunn, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. And is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? Hitting and and learning how to hit is it's an it's a messy process, and it's there's no there's no step by step guide or program that that's going to guarantee you success. You know, I mentioned it a lot of time uh, a few times throughout. The most important thing is to, is taking ownership, understanding that it's messy and it's going to be difficult and there's challenges and those challenges are are never going to go away. You know, no matter what level you make it to, you're always going to be trying to solve those problems and and uh, accomplish those goals and you're always going to be working towards getting better. So step one is having that understanding and then having the mindset that you're going to do everything you can become the best player you can and just continue to fight along that path. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. If you'd like to view the show notes or get in touch with me, you can find all of that information on our website at aotcpodcast.com. Let me know if you have any requests for future guests or topics, and please don't forget to subscribe, rate, or review to help others find and stay ahead of the curve.